Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Art Wright, and we are in week four of our series on Revelation, reading Revelation in the pandemic. I think we called it Reading Revelation Today, and we're exploring the ways in which Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, helps open our eyes, so to speak, to some of the realities of the world and calls us to um, a life of deeper discipleship and a life of um, more faithful worship to the one who is seated on the throne, uh, that is Jesus, um, the Lamb. Um, and so we we have um, introduced the book in week one. Week two, we explored the introduction, uh, chapter one of Revelation. And then last week, we looked at chapters two and three, which are the letters to seven churches. We're going to skip ahead just a little bit this week. We're going to skip chapters four and five. They are so good, and I hate to skip them, but I would encourage you, if you have time, go ahead and read chapters four and five. There's this, you know what, we're, we're just going to read it. We have time, and we'll, we'll talk about it briefly. After this, I looked, and there in heaven, this is chapter four, a door stood open, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones are twenty-four elders dressed in white robes, with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flame, flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third like a human face, uh, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. <laughs> Parts of a great Baptist hymn thrown in there. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne in worship, the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's the end of chapter 4, this beautiful image of worship in heaven. And uh, the 24 elders cast their crowns, they pledged their loyalty and allegiance to the to the one who alone is worthy of worship and and the one who alone is sovereign right and and this is verse 3 the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian perhaps the closest image we get in all of scripture to what god looks like and john doesn't really want to tell us what god looks like john really just wants to overwhelm us with this vision um and you know if it if it sounds overwhelming I think that that's the point. You know, there's th uh, flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder um, and fire and water. It is a full sensory experience, to be sure. And we've said this in the series before. 
you know, sometimes our tendency is to get sucked in by the details and analyze, well, what does this thing mean? And what does that thing mean? And what does this particular, you know, object refer to? But really, if we step back and sort of squint our eyes just a little bit, we can really get what's going on here. John is trying to overwhelm us with this vision of God's greatness. Uh, and And I think there's a sense that John is inviting us into worship. There's this scene of heavenly worship and and you too are called into this to participate in in worship as well so that's chapter four chapter five um we see this vision of a lamb uh who's also seated uh on the throne uh and who has been slaughtered but it is alive it's it's very obviously referring to Jesus, and Jesus also is described as worthy, and uh, they, they sing and, and worship and praise Jesus as well. And so, uh, you know, as we see these scenes of worship in chapters 4 and 5, in light of the Roman imperial context, we can, we can sense that the author is sharing positive images of who's really in charge. It's not Caesar on the throne. It's not Caesar or any of Rome's gods that are really in charge of the world um, or are in control of all things, but it's really God and this lamb. Uh, and so if you are participating in the imperial cult, if you're worshiping pagan deities and going to these temples or festivals that honor uh, either the, the imperial family or, or pagan deities, you might feel a little bit of tension as a Christian upon reading these words. And we in America today might feel a little bit of tension if we find ourselves tempted to worship other things, uh, some of the things that we've talked about in this series already. So chapters 6 to 8 are the next big unit. It's really chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 5. This is the opening of the seven seals. Um, and it's it's pretty fascinating there. Um, there are three scenes of judgment and calamity that, that unfold in um, series of seven events. So there's seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven bowls. And it's it can get really muddy, and people love to try to dissect what all these things mean. But but probably these seven seals, trumpets, and bowls are not distinct chronological events, but overlapping events and imagery. Um, uh, we've we've said you know apocalyptic literature and Revelation in particular, they are more uh imp more like impressionist paintings, right? Than that you know we shouldn't pay too close attention to each of the details or think that they're distinct. Uh, rather, the the artist and the author painting broad strokes that um, that create a you know an emotional response to all of this. So don't expect a nice, clear, logically ordered picture. And if, if you know, the temptation throughout history has been to, for many of us to try to read it like that, and that's just not what Revelation is offering. It's, it's offering um, an impressionistic image. Or we might liken it um, to the, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls to three variations on a musical theme, right? We're going to hear the same thing three times. So... 
If we haven't gotten political enough for you yet, surely we will get more political today. Uh, and I'll try to be gentle with it, but uh, it's certainly Revelation, when we launch into chapter 6, speaks a little bit more directly to some of the things that the author sees going on in the world. So we're going to read the first four of the seven seals today. And these are traditionally called the, the four horsemen of the, the apocalypse. Four seals of destruction my NRSV notes say. And we think seals, we're not thinking the cute sea, sea creatures, right? <laughs> but we're thinking, you might think um, like a wax seal you see in historical movies uh, that you'd put on a letter or something. They bear the mark of the sender whose seal is used and ensure that no one has opened it to modify it. Simply put, seals guarantee authenticity and they also help keep the content secret. So this is a revelatory moment. The secret is being revealed. And Warren Carter says these seals uh, that the Lamb is undoing one by one outline God's purposes for redemptive justice through chapters 6 through 8. And Warren Carter argues that the opening of the seals does not reveal the future so much as it does reveal present realities. Remember, Revelation reveals the way the world really is, I, I sometimes say it reveals the really real world. We think the world is this way, but it's really this way. And so as they're opened, each of these seals that we're going to read reveal God's judgment in the self-destructive ways in which the Roman imperial world organizes and conducts itself. So here we are at the beginning of chapter 6. Let's, let's read verses 1 through 8. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out, as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When, the, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's pay, and three quarts of barley for a day's pay. But do not damage the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence and by the wild animals of the earth. Fascinating stuff. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, so you should... You would do yourself a favor simply Googling Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and see some of the artwork that comes up, uh, some of the various things that pop up. Um, if you can, try to find Gustave Doré's woodcut of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Uh, I love Gustave Doré did a whole series on images from the Book of Revelation, um, and they're fascinating and beautiful. Really well done. The imagery of multiple um, horses comes from Zechariah 6. So if you want to take a field trip to the Old Testament, 
flip back over to Zechariah 6, 1 through 5. And um, in a cross-reference, there is Zechariah 1, 7 to 17. There they represent the Persian Empire, whose sovereignty is ultimately understood by the prophet as being under God's control. Now, horses were not used widely for transportation in the ancient world. So when we think horses, we shouldn't just think, you know, this is a riding horse or, or a form of transportation. Donkeys and camels were much more common. Horses were mostly used as military animals. So even the use of horses here evokes, you know, a military context. And of course, you know, I think for many of us, when we think Revelation, the imagery of these four horsemen comes to mind. You know, it, it doesn't say this explicitly in the text, um, and there's no sort of like one-to-one um, -one ratio, but we often think pestilence, war, famine, and death in terms of the um, the four horsemen. And so in context of a pandemic, uh, you know, sickness uh, spreading through the world, I think, you know, for a number of people has evoked the four horsemen. Is this one of the signs of the end times? You know, and, and this is one of the places we turn when we wonder if that's the case. The, the first four seals that are being unopened. Is this the beginning of the end? And we've sort of debunked that approach to Revelation. That's not what's going on here. This is revealing what is already at work in the world and has always been at work in the world in many senses. Uh, it's a, it's a, a hard, it's a bitter pill to swallow and it's a hard reminder. So let's, let's kind of talk through each of these one by one. The first seal, verses one and two, the, the living creature invites uh, the, this rider with a white horse to come out, and its rider has a bow. White is going to be the color of victory and conquest, uh, symbolic of military might and um, imperial conquest. The crown... Uh, that is given to him would be a guarantee of victory. And the bow, of course, is a military weapon. John's audience would have also thought of Parthia, or the Parthian Empire, an empire that was to the east of the Roman Empire and was the main military threat. They were famous for their archery skills from horseback. And um, Parthia in, in 62 CE, so maybe a few decades before Revelation was written, Parthia defeated a Roman invasion. And so this is a looming threat if you're living within the context of the Roman Empire. Um, there's always this threat of invasion and warfare from, from outside. Uh, that's just part of the deal of, of living in an empire. If, this, if you think back to the Soviet Union and Cold War era, era uh, the author of Revelation might have used a symbol of like a great red bear or something, which would, for us, evoke the Soviet Union, right? It's an animal and a color that's associated with uh, a foreign power that we feel is a threat. Elsewhere, and all the way in chapter 19, the rider on the white horse is Christ. Don't conflate these two pictures. Some, some interpreters have thought maybe this is Christ. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that that is what John is trying to evoke. All right, verses 3 and 4 are the opening of the second seal. Again, another voice, one of the living creatures calls out, Come, and there's a bright red horse. A rider is permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. It's maybe not too hard to interpret this image. Red is the color of blood, appropriate for slaughter. 
The sword is obviously obviously a military weapon. You know, and warfare has always been with humanity. Uh, that's That's just been an unfortunate part of the deal. The Roman Empire promised peace to its inhabitants, Pax Romana. But these images function to remind readers that Rome is not as secure or as peaceful as they would like us to believe. Violence is ongoing. Warfare is ongoing. And for if we're being honest, the Pax Romana is a bloody peace. It's a peace secured by conquering other lands. It's maintained through bloodshed. Jesus' execution on a cross is one example of that. Crucifixion is a threat. It's a reminder. We own your territory, and we will use every extreme form of violence we can to maintain our sovereign control over your territory. So Revelation is, is shining this reminder. You know, you live in the Roman Empire. You might think you're safe, but you're not. The Roman Empire is bloody and violent, and they use violence to maintain their, their imperial control. And so this is a reminder that this is the present reality of the world. This is the world that we live in, uh, in the first century and tragically in the 21st century. Note some, I think to some degree, the repetition uh, between the first horse and the second horse. There's, you know, the first horse gives a military image. This one does too, as if to underline or emphasize the point of the first horse, there's an accumulation of imagery here. It's not so much that these are distinct realities, uh, but there's an accumulation or snowball effect here. All right. Third seal. Black horse. Famine, we might call it. The rider holds a pair of scales in his hands. And scales, uh, not, not fish scales, but the scales that might be used by sellers to weigh various products. Uh, money, food, and so forth. Uh, and this is how, you know, if you were to go to the marketplace in the first century, uh, in all likelihood, if you're buying something, you'd buy, you know, a, a certain weight would cost a certain amount. It's not so different from going to, um, you know, the, the meat section at the grocery store today. So verse 6, a quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay. What's going on here? A day's pay is a, approximately a denarius. This is a coin that Jesus is mentioned or mentions in the Gospels. It's about a day's, a denarius is about a daily wage for a common laborer. And these prices that the voice is expressing are heavily inflated prices. The point is that you can't feed your family at this rate. You You can't feed your family on a quart of wheat for a day's pay. This is one commentator suggested six to 18 times inflation. Uh, and so this is outrageous prices. It suggests famine, what what many interpreters have, have suggested as well. And famine is, is an unfortunate byproduct of war. It's an unfortunate byproduct of pandemic. In some ways, we see that um, the economics of the now are affecting people's ability to get basic staples to be able to afford to feed their families. 6b is fascinating and, and maybe damning addition though, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. So the writer has permission to, to symbolically charge extortionary prices for basic staples of life, right? 
And the sense is that these everyday people aren't going to be able to afford to feed their families. 6B, olive oil and wine. These are not necessities of life. These are considered luxury items for the, the elite. And so political disputes, uh, some of Warren Carter's language, uh, pandemic, war frequently disrupt the food supply and the economics of, of food chains and cause widespread hardship for common folks. But those who are wealthy are going to be okay and continue to enjoy their luxuries. The non-elite members of society will suffer the most. Uh, and we see that today, right? Uh, the folks that have plenty continue to have plenty. They continue to be able to navigate life in the pandemic more easily than those uh, without. And, you know, it's the, it's the uh, people on the lower rungs of society, the people that um, are you know, loading groceries or working in other essential jobs that are going to suffer the most, uh, frontline workers. All right, verses seven and eight, fourth seal, pale green horse symbolizing death. And green is the color of sickness and decaying flesh, perhaps. The Greek word chloros uh, for green is where we get our word chlorine, which is a pale yellowish green gas. The word death here is actually sometimes translated pestilence, Greek thanatos. So, so verse 8, its writer's name was death and Hades followed him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence and by the wild animals of the earth. Again, we see this sort of accumulation of imagery. Uh, and these are traditional images and horrors that accompany war and, and perhaps pandemic as well. Um, uh, John is borrowing some imagery from Ezekiel fourteen twenty one. if you want to track that down. But this fourth horseman brings death in ways that have already uh, shown up uh, in, in the guise of the first three horsemen. So again, we have this accumulation of imagery. So pretty fascinating sequence in the text with these four horsemen. Warren Carter suggests that what we see here is an awareness of the normal way of life in the world, the normal destructive an oppressive struggle for power among nations. This is the way the world is. They're fighting for sovereignty and control. They are fighting for the biggest piece of the pie. Uh, and Revelation has already revealed that God is the one true sovereign. God is the one who sits on the throne. So this is revealing perhaps the futility of all these things and God's judgment on all these things. And there's also a sense, I'm going to use the word faith here intentionally. If you put your faith or loyalty or allegiance or trust in Rome and the peace that Rome promises, if you put your faith in empire, you're not as secure as you'd like to think, right? Uh, you, you might think that you have the good life, but Parthia threatens uh, the threat of violence and warfare and famine are all continue to linger unless you're a member of the elite class. So to whom are you going to offer your trust? To whom are you going to offer your allegiance and faith and loyalty? It's God alone that can provide true life. So how, how might we frame this up today? Well, you know, certainly the pandemic is revealing some of the 
challenges that were already present in in modern life. You know, and some of them are violent, and some of them uh, reveal the vulnerabilities of people that um, don't have a great deal of wealth. And some of us are feeling those vulnerabilities too. I've been sort of collecting New York Times and Washington Post and other newspaper articles throughout the pandemic that speak of the revealing nature of the pandemic. And here are some of the things that um, come to mind as I've been reading them. So, for example, Ekameni Wuan is a public theologian, and she says, in the pandemic, the country's idols are being exposed. She says, people are advocating that we throw our grandparents to the slaughter, sacrifice them on the altar of capitalism. And so it's sort of a bleak imagery of um, some of the things that we've sensed during the course of the pandemic. And perhaps there's a sense that... Um, uh, people, as they get older, become more and more disposable already. It's not just the pandemic, but that our capitalist society already undervalues people as they get older. We know that a lot of people who are older are lonely or, or struggle to feel valued by society. And the pandemic is exposing this reality in an acute way. And, uh, you know, capitalism doesn't value people uh, as they get older, capitalism values people that generate and produce. And, you know, another thing, one of the things that I, I read an article about um, women and the workforce, as the pandemic upends work and home life, women in many cases have, have carried an outsized share of the burden. Women have been more likely to lose their job and more likely to shoulder the load uh, with schools closed and daycare closed. And uh, this gradual reopening that we see isn't necessarily going to fix the problem, but uh, may force many women, especially, out of the labor force and into part-time jobs um, while increasing responsibilities at home. And that's not, uh, it's not always the case. You know, my family is much more um, egalitarian, I would like to think, but in many cases, that is the case. Uh, and so uh, a quote from this article by a... Um, Miss Stevenson, a, a former chief economist of the Labor Department, she says, um, this pandemic has exposed some weaknesses in American society that were always there. And one of them is the incomplete transition of women to truly equal roles in the labor market. Uh, yeah, I found this other article, and this is a quote from uh, one of the, the contributing um, voices in the article. Uh, about, it was about the coronavirus itself. The, this um, person said, It does not think. The coronavirus does not feel. It lies totally outside the elaborate social nuances humans have carved out through patterns of communication, representation, and discourse. Uh, and continuing the quote, This makes it a lethal adversary for the West. It has exposed or revealed, we might say, how much of Western society is permeated with influential people who have deluded themselves into thinking that their ability to manipulate words, images, and sounds gives them the ability to control reality itself. You might have someone in mind uh, who's a very influential leader in American society or global society right now. Uh, if we can say the right words or um, blast out or tweet the right words, we can shape the course of reality itself. And the pandemic is proving that that's not the case. And 
much the same way that Imperial Rome might think, if we blast out enough propaganda about how safe and peaceful we've made the world, then that's the way the world will be, but bloodshed is still a reality in the Roman Empire. Rome doesn't control as much as they think they do. Uh, you're not as safe as you, you would like to believe you are in Rome, uh, even if you, you know, continue to express otherwise. So, I hope this was a, a helpful consideration of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, revealing some of the stark realities of life in the first century and perhaps life in the 21st century. Uh, you know, we have to take this in context. We know that God sits on the throne. We know that Jesus sits on the throne and that they are the, the true sovereigns of the, the cosmos. We know that uh, early in Revelation we saw that Jesus holds the seven stars of the seven churches in his hands, uh, that God is at work in sustaining us and sustaining the cosmos throughout all of this. And so it is a hard, bleak, maybe scary imagery that we read this week. But Revelation reminds us that God is ultimately in control, uh, and that will bear through the entirety of Revelation all the way to the end. And the, the end of Revelation is a very comforting image of God with us. And so we have to hang on through some of these scary moments because, because better visions are coming. Well, thanks so much for listening this week. Um, looking forward to chatting a little bit on Facebook if you'd like to share. Otherwise, um, God bless you and looking forward to being in touch soon. Take care. Go in peace.